Hello and welcome to the 1201 podcast. My name's Callum Watt. I'm here with Callum Roper, Bradley Ossop, and this week's special guest, Jessica Williams. Okay, and this week we're going to talk about HS2, Trains in Wales, the Students' Union of Lincoln, and the Labour leadership. Uh, but we're going to start today with, uh, with a film review. Uh, Callum's seen uh, Parasites, an Oscar-winning film, the first one, I believe, uh, from Korea, or was it Asia in, entirely? I'm not sure. So uh, what did you n- think of it? First non-English winner, I believe. Mm. Um, well, I, I thought it was an absolutely fantastic film. First of all, just out of cinematic experience, there's so many ups and downs. There's a lot going on in it. It starts off as one film, it's a comedy, it's quite light-hearted, it has a bit of romance in it, but then it takes a really dark turn. There's a lot of undertones of class. Um, there's a lot of there's there's really it's following the film the theme of the last few years in film that we've had a lot of critique of capitalism and the current system that we see. Mm. Um, obviously, Joker last year was another big film. Lots of people given that the praise that it really does deserve. And actually, this is just following that trend, and it was I found it absolutely fantastic. Without spoiling any of it, um, it certainly gives a real meaning to the sort of the anger that we feel in society and and I think it's coming through into culture now we're actually seeing it in the mainstream whereas before we may have considered it to be far more um, below the surface or certainly in our circles it was seen as below the the surface whereas now it's come through in that mainstream and I think that's that's only a positive that we can take out of it. Mm. I said said before we were recording um, that once you get to a point where issues are so ubiquitous in society it becomes difficult for the mainstream to ignore it um, Bradley you've, you've written some articles on pop culture you're also eating at the moment um, <laughs> and I set blueberry and banana loaf that Amy uh, baked yesterday oh lovely lovely what do, what do you think oh, you haven't seen Parasite yet but what no, do you think of this I, general trend I mean I think the question for me is is how it gets directed um, so it's one thing I think it's a necessary first step to, to articulate these issues mm. um, and to see it in such, you know, to, to be winning an Oscar, a film that, that's dealing with those issues, to be winning an Oscar, it's great. But I suppose the question for us in political movements is how do we then direct that? Mm. The awareness is beginning to develop, but what happens next to it? Mm. I mean, obviously, in, 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 I shouldn't uh, equate one Asian country with another necessarily but we are we have seen big uh, protests in Hong Kong we've also seen I think it's Chile uh, we've ha- had some big uh, protests as well uh, recently against Brazil. the government Brazil um, I don't know how much is it that pop culture is sort of reflecting these trends in society or is it that pop culture is perhaps driving it to some extent I think it, it works both ways doesn't it you know, I think it was, they both feed into each other to create this this current trend that we're seeing. I think pop culture largely uh, has been harnessed historically by sort of the capitalist elite. You know, these big movie companies trying to get the next big trend and push us to like it, to uh, loathe it in some cases, and it makes them a profit. But actually, this this sort of anti-capitalist, anti, um, you know, anti. Well, it's, it's just anti, anti-status quo. Anti-status perhaps. quo. Yeah, I yeah. think that's exactly what it is. I think that's coming through, and but the thing is that it's making money now, so they're left. Do we promote this propaganda against us and make money, or do we try and ignore it and make it go away? 
and I think uh, actually some really good directors that are, um, that are coming through certainly the director of Parasite absolutely fantastic the way this film was shot mm. but the message does get through there's a real comparison between the rich house and the poor house mm. and then there's a, there's a real plot twist in the middle that, that certainly the, the, the watcher wouldn't expect but it's, it's an absolutely fantastic portrayal of that and I think um, I know in Korea there's, there's really been a, a, you know, a big um, held as one of these big bastions of capitalism in, uh, in Asia it is starting to crumble a bit. I know there's certainly a youth generation yeah. that, are, that are increasingly out of work, they're not being able to get the jobs that they want, go to university, and certainly the promised land isn't exactly what they thought it would be. I think it's ironic, isn't it, that, that things are becoming, that it's becoming profitable to go along these lines. I mean, we see how Disney is sort of becoming self-critical mm. and, um, you know, sometimes almost sort of anti-status quo and anti-capitalist in that respect but there's only so far it will go mm. I mean we could see that in um, Star Wars for example in uh, the uh, in The Force Awakens uh, the second film I think no no it's The, the, uh, the Last Jedi sorry um, there were lots of really interesting themes about um, revolution almost you know how mm. you know yeah. I, th I thought that that storyline was going to go down the route of um, people need to get get together to sort of overthrow the fascist mm. first order and that and the only way you do that is by rallying the galaxy to your side and, and, and anyone can do that they don't have to be the, the, the child of a famous person um, and there was even actually a scene in that about how um, weapons dealers are making money sending, selling weapons to both sides which is really really yeah. important mm -hmm. and I think it was too much for Disney they basically retconned it out uh, in, the, in the third film they came so close didn't they, yeah, yeah, they I, did. I, I quite like episode 8 I, I'm not a traditional Star Wars fan I like the prequels as well um, Ooh, and I mean, don't get me wrong <laughs> episode 8 had a lot, of, a lot of issues in terms of its narrative and stuff but I think they were, I respected what the director was trying to do mm -hmm. he was trying to take it in a, in a different direction um, I think unfortunately there's a lot of fans in, in the Star Wars base that are just too Star Wars is too beloved a franchise um, for, for a lot of the fan base too to, to, <laughs> to, yeah. to, to start coming in yeah. and radically shaking it up I think it, it, it's how too dearly to a lot of people mm. um, and also there were issues of how that was executed I think in episode 8 which didn't help it um, but I respected what they were trying to do and mm. they came close to making Star Wars actually a really interesting universe for me Mm. But after episode nine, it, I just have no interest in the franchise anymore. It's just. What yeah. do you think, Jess? Um, well, this is actually really interesting for me because this is maybe what I want to do my dissertation on, right, which good. is um, like media portrayals of capitalists. Because mm. I think we're saying like, oh, it's becoming a trend to show these uh, these rich people in this negative light. But like, if even if we look at Disney films, like Aladdin, that's very much a story of someone who is considered a good person even though he's going against all these uh, capitalist norms but then there is the argument at the end that like he becomes uh, his happy ending is becoming part of uh, the royal family so that would be an in, like something to think about for my dissertation um, but also I'd like to go back to Parasite quickly and this is kind of venturing into death politics if that's okay sure that's an <laughs> um, interesting concept why, why not like, <laughs> But um, I love the like the like growing popularity of foreign films in foreign language, not only because like it's great to 
have that experience of someone else's culture but also because it means I can go to the cinema and have subtitles on a film and not have to go at like a completely random hour like that's something people tend to forget about deafness like they're okay with like oh you can't hear me this this and this oh deaf politics like, yeah, actually not I, hearing I, I, I thought, thought, I thought, I thought even we the politics about something of people being morbid. dead yeah yes. uh, I'm with you now sorry, I'd just like for the record to say that I, I, I was on the right page yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, I'm sorry, with you, sorry. Okay. I'm with you. carry on I'd just like to know I'm a deaf woman that's why I'm talking about this more, that makes a lot more sense <laughs> right you know. okay. carry um, on sorry so deaf politics uh, and hmm. yeah it's like but people ab- for whatever reason absolutely hate subtitles and they hate them on anything and that's part of the reason why foreign films tend not to make it very far in like not like necessarily western countries but mm. in english speaking countries uh, and also like kind of about laziness like i think the director of parasite said something like um once you get over the two inch barrier of subtitles you're going to be exposed to so many great films that you wouldn't even think about otherwise. Mm. But uh, yeah, go go foreign cinema. That's, mm. that's interesting, actually, because if, if it's um, not attractive for a deaf person to watch a film with subtitles, what is the best way for a deaf person to enjoy cinema? If I meant uh, the general public rather than oh, okay. just deaf people. Oh, right, I see. I love subtitles on everything yeah and i watch it watch everything with subtitles if i can but um i generally don't go to the cinema because of the random times i don't even think in our local odeon they even have any subtitled things outside of foreign films uh so yeah i get invited to the cinema a lot and i'm like i actually cannot go because i won't be able to understand what's going on we should probably say other cinemas are available (laughs) just just not in lincoln because it is literally the only one uh for the for the time being anyway uh there was one um, that was showing slightly more avant-garde films a few years ago and i think there's a new one that's going to be opening up on the cornhill Mm -hmm. um but uh hopefully they might show some interesting stuff just to compete um yeah, no, that's um, that's really interesting. Good to uh, good to talk about that. Um, so, didn't expect to do a pop culture review, but we're uh, mm-hmm. that was actually that's actually really good. Um, big issues that have happened in the news this week is trains. So, not very much of a segue, but uh, we know that HS two has been approved. I know this is a bugbear of Callum's in particular. Yes. Um, <laughs> What was your reaction to to that? I was just extremely disappointed because I, this is another one of these big white elephant projects. It's a bit like the Garden Bridge. And again, this bridge has been proposed between Scotland and Ireland. These are big projects promising to bring all sorts of wealth and, and regeneration. But again, it's, it's a railway line that's running out of London to the north. We've got a number of them already. What we don't have is a high-speed line that runs across the country connecting up other areas of the country, deprived areas of the country. And also there's no promise that HS2 is actually going to go that far into the north beyond Birmingham and indeed Manchester. So actually the east again loses out. Lincolnshire is not going to benefit from this as far mm. as I can so see. What, so I, I don't know much about the, the, the strategy of large infrastructure projects, it's not mm. my area, but one argument I've heard um, to... to counter that is that if you have a faster service between London and Birmingham and maybe Manchester 
that relieves pressure on other regional um, rail lines. So, yeah, and so, that, so so those areas that aren't directly getting new infrastructure for, from HS2 might still see a benefit in terms of uh, reduced passenger load and all that sort of stuff. Is there any truth to that, do you know? Well, the, the, there is in, a, in the extent that we need to firstly be taking lorries off the roads. So by having a fast line that where we can run high-speed trains, I can't argue with the fact that if we had uh, more capacity then on the slower lines, you'd be able to run, run more freight trains mm-hmm. up the main lines, which is which is good. I think we can we can say that's a good thing. Well, we might want to see it in Lincoln as much as <laughs> we currently do. Well, yeah, in, in Lincoln it'll be it'll be a bit more of a bug there. Yeah, um, and that I can't deny that, and it would increase capacity to an extent. But also, there's other measures you can take in terms of upgrading the line to having in-cab signalling, mm. and that means that as it currently stands, signalling rolls in blocks on the line. Whereas actually the block will stick around the train, so as the train's moving, mm. it, the other trains will move into its area, then they'll get an in-cab signal saying slow down or stop because you're getting too close to another train. That means we can run them much closer together, and that's how they do it on the London Underground. They run them far closer together because of that. Mm. You know, you train every 30 seconds, that's fantastic. We won't be able to do that on the mainline network, but that's what we can do. There is smaller upgrades that aren't going to cost tens of billions of pounds that we can, that we can implement. And also, we need to upgrade the rolling stock as well, make it greener, electrify the lines as well. Mm. That mean they'll run far more efficiently. And There's it, a lot we can do. It's ma- it's massively over budget, isn't it? And, mm. yeah. Um, yeah. Way behind. Like, and it's, it started, and it's yeah. sort of like the 2030s, it's not going to be complete. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really long-term project. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't build it ever, but as it currently stands, I think there is other areas of the country that need investment and that need those high-speed links. London's got enough links. Manchester's got enough links. Birmingham's got enough links. Mm. You've got to think about some of the less connected areas. Leeds, for example, yes, it's on the East Coast mainline and connected up to London. But actually, Leeds doesn't have any metro system. It's got no trams and no underground, no sort of light rail system. Mm-hmm. And it's a massive city. It's growing and it's growing. And we're not putting in the infrastructure. Well, we, we still think about cities in the north. A lot of the political leadership in the north is saying that they do want this and they say it's good going to be good for their for their local economy but you're getting that from cities like manchester and leeds and birmingham mm. but i don't obviously that the line isn't isn't really going to ever get up as far as the likes of newcastle you know and sunderland and places like that well actually you know the reason why they haven't said anything on it because it doesn't affect their jurisdiction you know all that they could do is probably put out a statement saying, hey, how about spend some of this, uh, I don't know what it's got up to now, about 90 billion, is it? Something ridiculous. I've, I've seen all sorts of figures floated around. But, you know, that money should be spent elsewhere. And I can agree, local people, are, you know, cities are going to say that. But actually, I think what's going to benefit the likes of Manchester and Leeds is actually linking them up to northern cities. Because, I mean, you're, you're from Stevenage, so that's almost like a satellite. Yes. A satellite satellite town of London Mm -hmm. people commute into London so with Manchester if you could link up cities as quick as you can link up Stevenage to London then that would be fantastic because people won't have to move into the likes of Manchester and actually that means that there won't be as much of a strain on house prices in northern cities either because Mm. not everyone's influxing into these places 
and the the end product of HS2 in in, in the twenty early twenty thirties when it's done, mm. it's not actually going to be that good, is it? Compared to other the 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 tech that's on the lines of a lot of other countries. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and the fact that it so you know sort of even if it was completed tomorrow, it still wouldn't exactly be be the gold standard. In, no, in no. Uh, France, the fact that we're not France get- and Germany are years and years ahead of us. Yeah, because they've invested in high speed rail when it was a popular thing to do, and when yeah. there was less red tape to do it. You know, this 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 keyword of red tape, but actually our red tape is ourselves. Just sort of getting stuck, you know. I mean, the Channel Tunnel took forever to do. It was necessary, uh, and High Speed One was a necessary line to link us up to Europe. But this line, I think, is better. The money's better spent on upgrades. So, so even if we had it tomorrow, we'd still be be lagging behind. Well, yeah, we'd still have to build a High Speed Three, a High Speed Four, High Speed Five. You know, to link up the rest of the ten years. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Hmm. So, what's going to be the impact on the rest of the country? Um, what's going to be the impact on Wales, for example? Because that's well, sort of preferent, uh, pre- about as far away from the centre of HS2 as we are on the other side of the headlines. Yeah, well, well, it won't have any effect on Wales, I don't think, but it is slightly frustrating to see this massive project going ahead in England to have more links, as you say, into London, which mm. is already, like, it must be the most well-connected place in the entire of like Great Britain mm, when in Wales our entire rail infrastructure has been in need of like massive rehaul like for many many years and we've just seen pretty much nothing like we've seen very small changes like it's gone from Arriva Trains Wales to Transport for Wales but they pretty much do the same exact job mm. And then you have to consider, like, in North Wales, for example, if you want to go from north to south or south to north Wales, sometimes you actually have to go through England just to get there when there are much easier routes to get there if there were, you know, the railways in place, which there aren't. And even in, even in uh, shorter journeys in the south of Wales, you can go from... Uh, Swansea to Aberystwyth uh, like in an hour in a car but by train it takes five hours because it's so poorly linked up and yeah it is frustrating to see loads of money being put into what is arguably in my opinion a waste of time for somewhere that is already very well linked up and have pretty much the rest of the country completely ignored like the north has been yeah. largely ignored as you said mm-hmm. and so is wales and it's because it's just it's just not as profitable to get people from london to places than it is to do anything mm. in wales full stop yeah i, I think i'm going to mic a little bit closer there I, I think the important thing is you said there is it's about profit isn't it because Absolutely. there's still a profit incentive in the railways and as long as it's privately owned or at least the rail companies are privately owned, then there is just going to be that private incentive for profit. Well, exactly. They are nationalising somewhere, aren't they? Uh, yeah, Northern. Northern's going to be nationalised at the end of the month. I thought, I thought that was a crazy socialist idea. This is the, yeah, 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 we were told this is isn't isn't that ironic. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, actually, there's um, some historical precedents for, for that. The um, Most of the nationalisations of the mid-20th century, we sort of think of that as being at least projected for example. Mm. Actually, most of those nationalisations were carried out in the 1950s by the Tories. Mm. 
right? Because it just made too much economic sense. You know, those <laughs> those those industries had to be under central control in order to keep them running, basically, and keep the economy afloat in that respect. Mm. And they're now finding that with our natural monopolies in the form of rail. I wouldn't be surprised if they end up nationalising, you know, water and gas as well, you know, by the time we get to the end, because these are populist projects, right? And I think that Boris Johnson, he's not a, he's not a neoliberal. He's an, he, he is, he's just going to do whatever he thinks is popular. And I think um, we'll come on to the leadership later. Um, all of the leadership candidates have, have said that, you know, um, we should be nationalising rail, mail, and water, and things like that. But though, and those are our most popular policies. The Tories know that, and I think they will implement that to undermine us potentially. We could see that. I don't know. Um, as long as it doesn't upset their donor base too much. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think at this point it's more—it's just more about retaining power. And at the end of the day, if they nationalise it, their shareholders who funds the Tory party are going to get a nice big payout. Hmm. So they they win effectively at the end of the day either way, um, but yeah no it's probably good news that um, Northern's been taken under uh, oh, the ownership. It was an franchise. I mean if we see what's happened with the East Coast, obviously as you say my family's in Stevenage so I use the East Coast mainline quite regularly. Um, every time it is nationalised, uh, the service doesn't really change, um, but uh, it starts to become more profitable. Hmm. And then all of a sudden, as soon as it's profitable, it's then privatised, and then suddenly it becomes unprofitable, which raises the question, where's the money going? Um, so that's where we are. And it will be the same, I think it will be the same with HS2. Um, I can see the environmental arguments, I guess, for it in the long run. Yeah, yeah. Um, we do need more railways in order to be greener, especially electrified railways, less than diesel. Yeah, but it's a bit like... I mean, I also saw an article yesterday about damming the North Sea, the whole thing, uh, to to protect us from uh, from, from from flooding, <coughs> which may be <coughs> an extreme that? example. Can, can we do that? Uh, I mean, is that physically but this possible? But this is this is the point. Like, potentially we could, but is it actually the best use of our time and resources? Mm. Um, well, think know, of how much CO2 we put out constructing that. Exactly, like concrete, exactly. Production of concrete takes a lot of energy. And That's right. Yeah. A lot of CO2 is a lot of CO2. Yeah. You know, we could be doing that, putting solar panels in everyone's mm. home and installing electric boilers instead of gas ones and, you know, be- installing better insulation and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, that that th- Those are the things we need to think about. Unfortunately, we now have a, a Prime Minister who likes to think in terms of big infrastructure projects like this bridge across the Irish Sea for example which isn't going to do anything to help with that cause it's not going to change anything about Brexit either um, sorry to mention the B word but you know it's not going to change is anything that, is that banned that? from the podcast Brexit well it seems to come up every week anyway it will come up anyway but yeah that's the uh, that's the that's the crux of it um, we'll return to uh, unless anyone has anything else to say about HS2 or, or transport in general. I just hope that I just hope that I won't be have to be stuffed onto a, an overcrowded train on the way to Nottingham in future. Oh. That's what I hope for. Um, That's also delayed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which I don't um, I don't uh, do uh, as often anymore, but plenty of students do. Uh, and speaking of students, 
Nice little segue. Yeah, yeah, that was very well I was wondering how you were going to get how, how, how long do you reckon until we we, he's going to get taken up by big radio? Oh, <laughs> any day now. Any day. Um, there's been a controversial article published. Con- controversial is in the, um, two of us are annoyed, three of us are annoyed about it at the table. <laughs> no. I'm also annoyed about it, by the way. Are you the three? Oh, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a student anymore, so technically it's, it's nothing to so do you're with not me. allowed to be annoyed about it. No, no, and no. I, I actually went to the, uh, the leadership hustings for um, the students' union elections last year, um, and I tried to ask a question, and the chief executive, who we'll talk about in a moment, um, who spotted me and, and, and said, well, I recognise you as alumni, but I'm not going to allow you to talk. Um, I remember it well. Which was a shame. Um, and all I wanted to ask them was what, um, you know, these, these were the presidential candidates, and I said, you know, what, how do you see the students' union's place in the community, speaking as a, as a local citizen and also as a politician, I suppose. Um, but I wasn't allowed to ask that question, sadly. Um, but yes, no, uh, the, the guy who stopped me from talking to it in an interesting article, do you want to summarise it, Bradley? Well, essentially, um, so he's written a piece for uh, Wonky. It's a, a higher education blog, and I, I think I think they call themselves a think tank as well. I'm not sure. I, I know them primarily as a blog, and they produce stuff um, on higher education. Um, and so, I saw the president of the Students' Union, um, Cassie, um, share this article on Facebook yesterday. Cassie Oates. Yeah, yeah, saying basically saying how fantastic the CEO was. So that wow, this this has got to be worth a read then. So I uh, so I, I read it. I, I'm trying to remember what the phrase he used. It was it single point of failure. Was that the phrase he kept yeah, using? Yeah, that was the phrase. Yeah. So he he referred to um, what he thought of as the single point of failure for students' unions, um, which was basically um, elected course reps, which um, you know basically what he was saying was that there's often course reps elected on quite a small amount of the vote. Um, and and they they're often ineffective or, or rogue or sort of or, or just just a bit rubbish really. And that that was the single biggest threat to to um, uh, institutional uh, reputational damage. I think he talked about at one point as well. Um, uh, this to me, I agree with the president. It was an incredible um, article um, on several levels. One, uh, yes, there are bad course reps. I'm sure anyone that's been to university has heard tell of or experienced a, a bad course rep at some point or another. Um, but the, you know, there's several reasons why that might be. That that could be the training and support offered by the students' union, the, the culture within the institution, um, personal issues for the course rep themselves um, can get in the way. Um, what the institution itself is like, how receptive are they to the students' union and course reps? How how good are the staff in that department at, at working with course reps? So there's loads of issues to unpack around why a course rep is ineffective. First of all, which there was no real recognition of in the article whatsoever. Um, secondly, but even you know, so even if we take his point, yes, there are some bad course reps out there. The real question is: Is it appropriate for a staff member of a students' union um, to be publicly criticising the elected representatives of that union that he serves as a staff member? Um, it it seems completely inappropriate to me. And then for have, to have the president share it, saying what a great article it was, um, when they're there essentially to support those reps in their work. It, it was really mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. I think really to, f- to focus on it as the single point of failure for students' unions is also ludicrous. You know, the, the idea that a few bad course reps that aren't probably perhaps doing their job very well are the reason why she, the, the biggest threat that students' unions face um, 
in in a you know an, when we're living under a government that's actively hostile to the pursuit of knowledge, the free pursuit of knowledge, mm-hmm. is to me a, an astounding statement for anyone to make, let alone a staff member who's supposed to whose job is actually to serve and support those reps, not to criticise them really. Hmm. And it sort of talked of the culture of the Students' Union over the last few years when I was a student. Um, it didn't feel like they were trying to... I mean, the, the Students' Union has got something like... It's over 10,000 members. It's more... Yeah, it's like, I think it's 14,000 or something. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, up, they're getting up towards 17,000 students. 17,000. Yeah. Yeah, so most of them, because it's an opt-out system, are members of the Students' Union. Yeah. And I just think that... I mean, Lincoln is, has a population of something like 100,000 if you include the whole urban area. Mm-hmm. So it's about more than 10% of, of, of the people who live here. And students have uh, huge issues with housing, primarily. That's the big community issue. Um, lots of them work as well. Of course, many students will also be mature students and they'll be working part-time and, and whatever. You know, um, I used to work with students in the nightclub industry, for example, who are trying to supplement their pitiful student loans um, so these are all material serious economic issues which I know that there are more issues within universities as well in terms of academic reps and things but students unions should be active in you know, organising their members and so on and I would really like to see more encouragement for that whoever it comes from whether it's the, the chief executive of the students union or or, 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 yeah. or from the National Union of Students. I know Lincoln SU isn't a member of that anymore, <laughs> sadly. Um, controversially. <laughs> controversially, yes. Uh, despite uh, our best, or despite students' best efforts, obviously it was nothing to do with me um, as an alumni. But, um, but that's where we are. Where do we go from here? Or where do you go from here, I should say? Well... As a, as, a, as a course rep, as one of these sort of people that have been attacked. You're the problem, really. Yeah, I know, I'm the problem. I should just, you know, just leave. Um, as a course rep, I think, actually, we should be highlighting the good work that we do. Just this week, I was doing some good work, speaking to students about uh, the issues they face, gathering quite a lot of information to pass on to course leaders so that they can change a course that will benefit the students the most. So they can enjoy their experience, they're being assessed properly, the content going forward is what they want to be learning at university. So actually we're doing a lot of good work and there's a lot of people there's a lot of people that put in quite a few hours actually into this course rep mm. business. Especially the school reps, they do a lot of work. And I think it's 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 certainly, you know, it's it's, it's quite offensive actually to say this to mm. to any any course rep that's doing their job right. And yes, there are some that don't pull their weight around. There's some that get elected and might not do anything. But there's some of us that do put in a lot of work. We try our best to attend meetings when we can. We are still students and we do have other commitments. We attend meetings, we speak to our peers, we pass on the information. And actually, I think the question we've got to be asking is, is this a trend towards moving away from any elected reps for students? Mm. Is this a move that they're trying to say that actually electing reps is a is a is a is a terrible way of doing it? We should be appointing people, um, former students, and then they should be taken over. I don't think that's the the answer. The answer is proper training. Um, less talking about being a course rep being good for your CV, more mm. a course rep being 
responsibility to your peers, a responsibility to your university and to your course, and actually it'll benefit you going forward. Forget about your CV, forget about the, skill, um, the skills that you get from it. Just think about the experience, you know, and also the, the networks and connections you make from that. Mm. Again, you know, it's, it's more about what you put in than what you take out. But let's, let's just think about those skills, for example, mm-hmm. because actually um, being, there has to be some incentive for someone to do it. Yeah. Um, it's not just necessarily an altruistic thing, although it should be. The skills that you should be learning representing people, for example, and this is the case in trade unions, is how you raise the voices of other people. A lot of people become reps in trade unions because they've had some kind of issue at work themselves, then the union has helped them out, um, and then they want to repay that, basically. Um, And it's actually a lot easier to do that job. You can go into a room and represent a member um, who's got a disciplinary issue, and you might be able to work around uh, individual policies, and you'll come out with a better deal. And sometimes people think that's what a trade union's there to do. But actually, if you're talking about real structural changes, so that um, you don't have um, bullying in the workplace, so that um, people are allowed to uh, take appropriate breaks, to to improve uh, the atmosphere in, in a workplace, to deal with safety issues, those sorts of things. All of those things are easier to deal with if you've got more members in that workplace and if they are active as well because this is also a feature of my career when I was a student is that you would often get officials, nameless officials I shall say, um, who would turn around and say well students don't care about this and therefore we're not going to and students do care and we have shattered that illusion yeah we have um, yeah. this term yeah. by uh, sorry last term by um, the large turnout we saw in the NUS referendum mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the president stood up at a, at a public meeting that was actually reasonably well attended yeah. um, and told students there that, that they w- we wouldn't get engagement in the referendum because students don't engage with those sorts of issues. We saw over 2,500 students vote in that referendum. Yeah. We met Corsi massively. Yeah. And we, we crossed it you know, beyond what they expected, even what we expected, actually, because we'd had our hopes down that people wouldn't be turning out because we constantly hammered with, well, nobody turns out to these, nobody engages in student politics, mm. and people on their masses turn out and they had their input. And I, and I think... Really, for, for me, reading this article, a lot of things began to make sense. In, when you look at the trend that you've seen in Lincoln for the past five years or so, yeah. uh, probably even longer than that, actually, um, of democratic institutions within the union being eroded, slowly but surely, piecemeal reform here and there. Mm-hmm. If you look at where we've gone, where we, where we were to where we are, you know, we had, bear in mind, it wasn't, it wasn't a council that was issue-free, but we had an elected, accountable, representative council that had real policy-making powers and was able to hold officers to account to some degree, um, to no institutional framework to hold officers to account, pretty much. It's very difficult for ordinary students to call a grassroots meeting. Um, It's very difficult to pass policy or bylaw changes. Um, And and actually, even our own bylaws aren't a protection anymore because they're... Uh, repeatedly ignored or twisted or misinterpreted by the, the board, board. By the board, basically said that we can change them at will. Yeah. Um, so you know, when so when you see a chief executive that has been in power over that time, and it has some some do, you know we don't know exactly what role he played in, in in these events. Obviously, they were primarily driven by elected officers, 
Um, but you know, as a, as a CEO, he he works day day in day out with his officers, um, and he has overall responsibility alongside the trustees for the strategic direction of the union. These th- when you see him make such public comments about how reps are ineffective and and they're the single biggest uh, strategic the single point of failure for unions. Some of these things begin to make sense if that if that's a reflective of the culture that operates within the union, mm. you know, in terms of, of of how staff are trained, in terms of how how uh, the culture is approached within the union. If that's reflective of that, then the the trend we've seen over the last few years begins to make a lot more sense. Yeah, well, the, the reason why he, he keeps putting, I, I just had a quick flick through the article, elected reps. He puts that in quotation marks, elected, elected. As you they know, they are, they are, they are, they are elected. They, you know, there's no. And, yeah. and the, <laughs> he, the argument he says that five percent, uh, there's a five percent turnout for most rep elections. So what? They're still elected, and they've still got responsibility. And you know what? He he's the CEO of the organisation that mm. runs the elections. Mm. The question that, that, that shouldn't be a point he uses to hammer yeah. elected reps. That should be a question yeah. for the union as an institution of. How do we improve we our election to, process? How do we engage students in course of elections yeah. more? Yeah, I think a, a political culture comes around through having democratic bodies woven into the fabric of the SU, hmm. not removing them. That's not how you get people to engage. Yeah. You need things like regular ASMs. You need a, a council body like we had before. You need students understanding that the SU is theirs and they've got to take charge of it. Hmm. And I, I mean, he talks about course reps specifically at one point, but I, I served as postgraduate officer for, for two years here. Um, so I might be one of these reps he's talking about, I don't know. Um, and I was elected on quite a small number of postgraduate students, actually. Um, but my experience of working with the students' union was it was like getting blood out of a stone to get promotion for those elections, to, to get support to run mm. campaigns as an officer. So actually, there's an awful lot of questions the union, and you know, it's not it's not just a question and, for James Brooks. And it, and it doesn't have to be that way because a few years ago, the turnout in SU elections was higher than mm. in the local elections. I mean, full time elections, they still have quite a good turnout, but there, but there are pockets within the part time officer elections where that's not true. Mm. Um, but I, I tried actively to get more support and more and more um, advertising and to run the elections better, and it, I, I faced a lot of difficulties trying to get that support from the union. Now, obviously, that's not you know you can't really put that on the head of, of James Brooks. That's a that's a question collectively for all of the officers and staff involved in the union, yeah. um, but he is a representative of that and, and wrote that article as a, mm. as, as a public figure. So he, he needs to ask questions of his own institution before he uses it as a way to attack reps. I and, think, and that's an interesting point as well because we wouldn't be talking about the policies of the SU in the context of a member of staff normally, mm. because they are not elected; they're yeah. appointed and they're just there to do a job. Um, isn't it bizarre though that the that this most senior member of staff is the one who is writing about policy yeah and not the and not the president mm. so he's actually so that that's the only reason that we can have this conversation basically mm. is because he is basically making himself a public figure yeah um, and it shouldn't be like that yeah. you know i couldn't you know i work for a trade union branch i couldn't talk about the policies in my branch as me because mm. i'm not elected i don't have that responsibility it wouldn't be it wouldn't be done but in Lincoln Students Union, it's it's done very very differently, yeah. um, and it's very it's a very strange place to be. Um, Lincoln Students Union is 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 not a normal students union. It's a very abnormal students union in how it operates and how it and how the officer team see themselves. I think mm. I think there's a there's a culture that needs to be challenged with how. Yeah how the union operates but there are elections this year I don't know when they are when, when uh, voting opens 8pm this coming Monday the 17th 
Okay. And they're open for 10 days until 2 p.m. on the 26th of February. So read those. If you are a student and you're listening to this, read those manifestos carefully. Uh, watch the inevitable music videos and, and mm. uh, go to the hustings as well. Make up your minds. This might be one of the last times you get to vote on anything. Uh, <laughs> so uh, do, do enjoy that. Um, who, what am I talking about? Is it the Students' Union or the country at large? Uh, which uh, moves us on to our next topic, of course, which is uh, the Labour leadership. There you go, another little segue. Oh, no, he's, um, he's on fire today. The, uh, Have you received formal training in this role? Maybe. I should have been a journalism student. I think the, the, th- the thing is... Um, Part of me wanted to be a journalist actually when I was younger um, until I realised that in order to get on you needed to have gone to Eton, Oxford or Cambridge um, in, in order to get anywhere in, in journalism sadly. So uh, politics I mean, it I, is. I, 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 I saw Eton once, that's about it from a distance, yeah. that's the closest I've been to Eton. Yeah. So. They, they probably would send some redcoats out on horses <laughs> to hunt you down <laughs> if you got any down. closer. Um, <laughs> But um, so the the uh, speaking of redcoats, the, uh, the the as I say, the Labour leadership um, has suffered its first fatality post uh, the start of nominations, which is Emily Thornbury. She is out. She got very very close. I have to say, she got thirty one nominations from CLPs, um, and she needed thirty three. Um, it's I think it's kind of a shame in a way because I started that contest thinking she is the last person I want to be leader because she kind of had this ethos about her of, of blue labour mm. uh, that's what I was worried about um, there's a certain segment I think it's fair to say within the labour movement that thinks that the only way that we'll get back into power while keeping our economic policies is to move to the right on mm. social issues and I thought she would go down that route and mm. she didn't to yeah. be fair to her her voting record is actually quite good overall um, and she is a good communicator mm. uh, her bombastic speeches at conference are uh, brilliant and she was quite right to say that she has held Boris Johnson quite well to account at the uh, foreign office and actually yeah. I, ho- I hope she stays there actually mm. um, a complete turnaround for me I thought she would be an excellent candidate but she's not in the running anymore um, I don't say not that I was going to vote for her. Uh, I don't think I was going to vote for her. Um, obviously, as some people know, I'm backing a different candidate. Um, but uh, it's a shame that we won't have this as much of a broad selection as as mm. we did in the past. Yeah, I, I know that that argument was made um, by by Thornbridge's team that actually she should. She should be selected by CLPs just so we can have a broader possible selection of candidates. That's, going how, Cor- that's how Corbyn got in in the end, wasn't it? Well, yeah, by yes. splitting the votes <laughs> completely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the uh, I mean, Thornbury got in the same way because uh, people who were backing other candidates switched to her charitably, which is basically what happened to Corbyn five years ago. Um, but then there was an effort, I think, two years ago at conference uh, to change the party rules to make it easier to nominate a candidate so that nominations could come from CLPs instead of just MPs and then somehow in the process of negotiations on the National Executive Committee which is the the, the ruling body of the party outside of party conference um, sometime in those negotiations that became 
not only do they need nominations from the PLP, but also on top of that, CLPs and affiliates. And I was watching this happening. What? You've made it harder to nominate. Uh, this isn't really opening up uh, democracy in the party, I thought. Um, I don't know. It would mean that both the right and the left of the party had a say. Because you get the PLPs traditionally far more right wing than some CLPs. And indeed, some CLPs are right wing too, but you get more of a, a broad church when it comes from the CLPs, whereas the PLP, you know. I mean, I'd, like I say, they're, I, they're I was... More, they're far more right-leaning than the wider country. I, I would be happy for it to be both, you know. Mm. You could get nominations from CLPs, or you could get them from the PLP, or both, if you chose. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't understand why you need both. Um, yeah, it seems like a... I mean, I, I'd agree that it seems like an over-the-top fail-safe. Because mm. we're all in the same party. It's not like an open caucus sort of situation. I, I, I don't think MPs should have any say over the leader other than as a member they get a vote. I don't, I don't think they should have yeah. that privileged but position to, to yeah. be a, a, a barrier or yeah. an enabler they of a certain candidate. They have enough political clout to convince a lot of people anyway as, as MPs of the party anyway. Mm. So you would have thought they would be able to, they'll probably join a campaign team and they'll be on the phones or on, on the doorsteps metaphorically speaking to people about um, who they think's best, you know, and, and they do carry a lot of clout, some of them, some of them are big names within the party, you know, if you had a big name come out behind you you know that would really support you don't need their vote in the PLP really mm. who are you backing in the contest Jess? Uh, well I'm actually not in the Labour Party anymore oh okay but who would you be or who, who and to be okay from an outsider's perspective then who would you like to see as Labour leader um, I'm actually not massively read up on it because I'm not part of the Labour Party anymore and also my society had a meeting on it, which I wasn't there for. Uh, but I was... A socialist student, Lincoln, presumably. Uh, yes. Yeah. Not to plug my own organisation. No, you can <laughs> plug, plug away, plug, plug away. away. Plugging is allowed. <laughs> um, a very worthwhile society does excellent uh, lead-offs, I believe, on various topics. Um, and, uh, Definitely. Yeah? What, They're excellent quality what, every single week. What day of the week do they meet? Mondays, 6 till 7... In the Minerva building, you'll have to check the Facebook thing to find out if the exact room. It's fine. Um, yeah, well, I was backing Nandy for a long while, and then obviously she said that whole, all that stuff about uh, Scottish independence and how they should be treated the same way the people in Catalan were, which I thought was... Uh, abhorrent mm. and obviously Catalonia. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Catalonia. Sorry. Yeah. Um like not even just as a as a nationalist myself, but just the like promotion of state violence against citizens doesn't seem like a massive uh green flag to me. Pretty, pretty sketch, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh and that's pretty much I mean, all I know. Like even if, even if she didn't, even if she didn't mean what she said about Catalonia, hmm. she should have known that that was a violent oppression, and yeah, perhaps um, clearly she didn't. Absolutely. Like, if anything, if she didn't know, that shows ignorance towards the politics of other countries, which also isn't a good sign for a Labour leader. Um, but to be honest, now I don't really have a preference because. Like none of them are gonna do much good 
for the people back in my home. So you don't have confidence about RLV. No, not really. But I think she would be my second choice after. Okay. Well, she's my first choice now because I can't support Nandi anymore. Hmm. hmm. So what worries you? Because obviously Rebecca Long Bailey's the more left-wing candidate in right. the selection. Do you, do you think she's not sincere or do you think that it's those policies just won't um, help Wales specifically? Well, I mean, it's, it's always going to be very hard to vote from a Welsh perspective mm. because I know none of them in the long term will actually help Wales because you would definitely need a more uh, obviously, not even pro-independence, just pro just pro-Wales in general candidate and I don't see that from pretty much any of them uh, but oh my god I've forgotten the question what? But, uh, well obviously I asked initially what the who you prefer as leader I was more yeah. con- I thought because from my perspective my con- I, I mean I would be okay with Keir Stam I would still I would still campaign for him I wouldn't leave the party but um, I have more confidence that Rebecca Long Bailey, having been involved in writing the 2017 manifesto, for example, understands the um, political program which improved our position so much in that election and mm. could take us forward. Um, but you're just not confident confident that that was help Wales in general, or, or is it just that as a nationalist? you want us to break away anyway or you want them to break away anyway and so therefore it doesn't matter no it doesn't matter I mean I still vaguely care about you know the working class in England because mm-hmm. I don't want them to get fucked over by the Tories but that would mean uh, you know electing an electable leader of the Labour Party which in my opinion Jeremy Corbyn wasn't and that may have been because of his left wing policies but that doesn't necessarily mean we should have a push towards the right. It just means we need someone who can put across those policies or similar policies uh, in a more electable way, if there is such a thing. Mm. Mm. Okay. So where is everyone else in this in this scenario? I mean, my, my first preference is always going to be for Rebecca Long-Bailey cards on the table. I think the, uh, I think my preferences have always looked a bit like creme brulee. Like the the, the top layer was was pretty hard. I was always going to go for her, but the candidates below could have been in any order. Maybe it doesn't matter because we we can be fairly certain that uh, Long Bailey and Starmer will be the final two candidates. Well, I think that's creme brulee now. <laughs> Sorry, I haven't made you hungry. Yeah, you just you you were eating earlier, but uh, not creme brulee though. Not creme brulee, no. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think uh, to be fair, we're getting to the stage now. I was actually looking at an article yesterday that was talking about the nominations. Obviously, uh, an unprecedented number of CLPs have nominated mm-hmm. someone. Um, half of them, roughly, have nominated Keir Starmer. I think about a third. I think, or, or a quarter, or a third, have nominated mm-hmm. uh, Rebecca Long Bailey. Um, and not enough nominated um, Emily Thornbury and a few others have nominated uh, Lisa Nandy. I think that was about 10% or so. What's, 
what's sort of been ignored a little bit is the deputy leader. Mm. The overwhelming majority have been nominating Angela Rayner for that one and that's interesting because Keir Starmer's kind of being supported by the right of the party I'm not sure if he is that right wing or not but he's definitely got that support Angela Rayner is very closely associated with Rebecca Long-Bailey and the left of the party so what does that say sort of about the mentality of, of Labour Party members um, maybe it's just simply a reverse of 2015 where they elected a left-wing leader and someone who was more of a centrist in, in Tom Watson. Do maybe members think that they're balancing it out, keeping it keeping it fair? Maybe deputy leaders are seen as a bit more of a wishy-washy role. No, I wouldn't, really, well, I wouldn't really be able to say what they do. What does a deputy yeah, well, leader do? Most of the pledges that they've been making is about uh, organisation of the party of the PLP mm. so it's about mobilising membership so a lot of them talking about the grassroots being important mm. I know Dawn Butler had an action plan that she excellently put, put across they impressed a lot of people at House Election mm. Meeting um, she, a, a lot of them have, have been speaking about this sort of uh, motivation and reorganisation of the party um, so that we can campaign effectively mm. um, but in terms of the the specific role, it's always been very unclear at times. You know, a lot of people, you know, what did Tom Watson do? Beyond undermine the leadership, what did he yeah, do? Because yeah. you know, I'm pretty sure that's not in the job description. I wish we had a slightly less prolonged leadership election process. I feel like we need to crack on now and well, take fights to the Tories. It is, the results do come out dangerously close to, well, I'm pretty sure local election campaigns in a lot of places have already got rolling. Yeah. I don't get me wrong, I think, I think we need to have these internal conversations mm. and it, it's important to debate the direction of the party, um, but I wish it was a slightly faster timetable. It sort of feels like people know the candidates now. People, mm. I feel like most people are probably ready to, as ready as they're going to be to, to cast a vote in that. Mm. I don't think another month and a half of deliberation and debate mm. in the press is actually going to help inform anyone anymore at this point. Um, but what it will do is reduce our capacity to, to start putting forward a fresh image after the election, like you're saying, in terms of local elections, it reduces mm. our ability to mobilise around that a little bit. So if anything, I, I would rather us have a, have a quicker election period next time. Mm. Something to bear in mind if you get onto the NEC at some point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so about, uh, I've just got brought, brought up the article from Labour List. Um, a third of CLPs have nominated Starmer and Rayner. Um, uh, about a sixth have nominated Starmer and another deputy, and another sixth have nominated Rayner and another leader. And then the remainder, which is just under a quarter, have nominated someone else. So it's a bit of a split field. Do you think um, Starmer's got a good chance of winning it? Then? I think he's got a very. I th I, I, most likely. I mean, he's got well over half of the nominations and you've got to think as well that a lot of the people in those meetings are activists generally speaking people who are more active in the party tend to be a bit more left wing I would say mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's true actually. I don't know if that's true because I've been doing some phone banking um, for the Rebecca Long Bailey campaign and we've been phoning up a number of CLPs and I've been informed that they're more right-wing CLPs and we're mm. not and our, our, our list of numbers because obviously it's momentum based sheet because the Labour lists haven't come out yet yeah um, are very small in some CLPs whereas in Lincoln actually we've got quite a few sort of lefties as it were or at least people sympathetic to momentum and Rebecca Longbone but also we, we've got an all-member meeting structure in Lincoln but that's not true of all CLPs is it 
No, it's no, not. No, no. Many will be still under the old general committee structure. So, it won't, it won't, so a lot of these CRPs nominating, it won't be all members that are voting in it. It will be delegates. Potentially. And delegates actually, de- it's delegates yeah. from local uh, local branches yeah. and trade unions and some socialist societies. And like and in my experience, actually, they, those aren't hotbeds of, of left-wing activism within the Labour Party. The, the, the hotbeds are yeah. left-wing activists that would sort of help Corbyn um, at least when he was leader were students, younger people mm-hmm. people that are newer to the party so actually I think if you, the nominations won't nec- of, of CLPs won't necessarily be reflective of the opinion of the party as a whole Well I think the important thing we've got to do then is going forward, and maybe that's why there's such a long election period is because we've got to get out those masses of members hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of them, we've got to reach them whatever side you're on you've got to be phone banking, speaking to them going to meetings um, maybe debating, you know, it depends how the CLPs want to do it themselves in terms of whether they want to put in any, any more debates or they just want to move on from it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of work to be done to get those people out, and, and especially considering there is a, a large percentage of Labour members that are just members, they pay their fees, you know, more than welcome to be in the party, but they're not campaigners, they're not activists. And I think my, my issue with Starmer is that I just don't really know what he's about don't really know what he stands for well rrb it's fairly clear actually because she she had a, a she's been involved in actually advocating for a lot of some of the most popular policies that that we had under corbyn so i i sort of know what the direction of the party broadly would be under in, in rrb Starmer, i just i don't really know yeah, yeah. i'm not mm-hmm. really sure and that worries me particularly mm-hmm. at a time when we need to you know it's all well and good saying he can handle himself well uh, you know in a press interview or, or at the dispatch box or whatever um, sure that's important it's good to have a media savvy articulate leader that, that certainly helps um, but what is more important than that I think is a very clear message and direction from the party and if as a member who's followed this for a little while mm. looks at Starmer and is not really sure what he's about how are we then going to turn that into a very clear coherent mm. message I think, I think I think that that sort of I wouldn't say vacuosity because that would be a bit unfair on Starmer because mm. he's clearly he's clearly quite intelligent and I think he does know what he's doing. Um, but that sort of uh, absence of partisanship is exactly what a lot of members are looking for, mm. if you see what I mean. I think they see that as a strength in terms of uniting the movement. Um, it's why this both the majority of the PLP and the majority of CLPs, it would appear, uh, are backing him because... He f- they feel like he's someone that they can unite around who isn't partisan. Um, but, it, but, who, but it's politics. Yeah, what, it is why politics, would you not be yeah. partisan? I don't understand yeah. that. Um, I think people were under the impression, or at least they believe that part of the reasons why we may have lost the election was because of so sort of perceived infighting and instability within the party. Mm. I mean, I'll actually point to the Tories that... Are, even now, you know, they're, they're still infighting, you know, kicking out the Chancellor, yeah. you know, um, just this week. They're certainly not at peace. Our party is not at peace. But is that not just a symptom of politics? And rightly, that's just political discourse for you. If there is disagreement, so be it, because that's how and politics works. If we all agreed on everything, it would be very boring. Yeah. And we wouldn't get any new ideas and concepts come through. It would just be same old, same old, ticking over and nothing would change. And, and it's also quite, it's quite a bad faith argument, really, for, for the right of the party to spend years undermining the image of the party in the press mm. through infighting 
to then turn around and say, oh, well, we, need a, we need a leader who's going to unite us all, so we stop him fighting and having a bad press image. The image that they've helped create. It's well, a bit yeah. it's a bit of a bad faith argument, really. Mm. Well, whoever whoever gets elected will have about a month between being elected and the local elections that are happening in May. Mm. Yeah. Um, That'll be interesting. That will be the big test. That will be there'll be a first big test for them and it'll be a big test for the movement in general. Yeah. Although really um, I don't I don't think our... I don't think you can hold the leader accountable oh, no, when no. they've come in no, and we, it's, four it's, weeks it's, before the elections. It's the reaction. I think it's the reaction to the local elections. If we take a big hit in the local election, it's the reaction going forward from that. Yeah. Is how we we do it. And also we've got GLA elections in London. That's quite big. I I doubt we're going to lose the mayoralty in London. That that could conceivably happen. Who knows these days? You never know. Who knows? You know, I mean, um, Sean Bailey's an awful candidate for the Tories, so we should be all right. But you never know. Boris Johnson was an awful candidate. And Carl McCartney locally as yeah, well, of course. Carl McCartney was um, an awful racist, yeah. sexist pig. Mm. Um, and, uh, and largely incompetent, from, from what I understand. Uh, people still voted for him on, on, the, national, yeah. on the national swing. Yeah. Um, but he won't get in the cabinet. Obviously, uh, even Boris Johnson has, has more sense than that. <laughs> um, the Tories... I mean, they might be doing the same things to themselves. Really, they all—they seem to have selected a cabinet, which is all very much in agreement with Boris Johnson slash Dominic Cummings. Um, so, it's their project now. They can do what they like with it. Um, we just have to do our best to resist them. I would say, um, at every 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 single level that we can, and I just hope that we have a leader of the Labour Party that can encourage that. Or at least not getting in the way of people doing grassroots organising um, in the interests of our social policies. Yep, agree. Maybe that's a, a topic for a future podcast: grassroots activism mm. and community organising. In that's a good, good mm. topic. To and the Tory yeah. hegemony. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. And I think on that note, we've been talking for an hour, believe it or not. So I think we'll. Uh, We'll end it there. We, I think we hope to be um, back next week. Yes, yeah, we should be back next week. Okay, and, uh, plenty more to talk about. Yeah, always. All right. Seen elections will be on at that point. Yes. Well. No. We say we're trying to get some candidates maybe to come and speak on yeah. that. Um, I can so think of one or two that might join us. Yeah. Yeah. There might be a few. Watch this space. But for now, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.